Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 148. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're surfacing Major Tom in an EU communist state. And as promised, last week I did my duty and I watched the Microsoft Surface event in its entirety. You? I didn't watch the event live as I was delivering a webinar, but I caught up with the recording later and it was one of the best Microsoft events that I've seen. Panos Panay, who is Microsoft's chief product officer, he's a very, very good speaker, more engaging than any of the Apple presenters that I've seen. It felt like he was actually talking to you. And I loved the part where he came down to where the camera crew and the production staff were in order to demo the Surface Studio. To be honest, though, all of these events seem to be the same, whether it be Apple, Microsoft or another. There's a bit of talk, there's a promo video showing a gamer and then someone drawing something arty with a pen and then the specs. Where's the Excel geeks? Where's the coders? Where's the PowerPoint slide designers? We use surfaces too, you know. A lot of the reviews of the event focused on the new surfaces, but what didn't get much coverage, and if it did was an afterthought, was the amount of work that Microsoft have put into making their products accessible and inclusive for those with disabilities. The packaging of their products, keyboard stickers, labels for cables, even a hole drilled into the kickstand for a lanyard to make it easy to pull the kickstand out. Their pre-recorded event included a section on this featuring their Director of Accessibility for Devices, who himself is disabled. And he explained that in the past, he'd actually had to use a fork to open his laptop lid. Aside from the inclusivity and engaging presentations, Microsoft did actually announce some products. First up was the Surface Laptop Studio 2-in-1. It's Microsoft's new flagship 2-in-1 laptop. It still folds flat, as you'd expect a 2-in-1 to do, but it has a floating mode where the screen sits at an angle. It tilts upwards and behind the trackpad. To quote Microsoft, for immersive gaming or streaming experiences. It also contains a magnetic storage and charging slot for the new Surface Pen. And prices for the Laptop Studio start at $1,600. Next up was the Surface Duo 2, which is a folding phone device with two displays joined by a hinge. In theory, that makes it more durable than other foldables that have one large display. It's got an 8.3 inch screen compared to the previous version, which was 8.1. And when I said there's two displays, there's actually three. What Microsoft have done is put a small strip They've added it to the hinge on the side and it's used to display the date, the time, the battery status and incoming notifications. Version 2 has a triple camera, larger battery and more storage than version 1. And it comes in two colours, Glacier and Obsidian, which is also known as Jet Black. Prices start at $1,599. On the Surface Pro 8, the single USB-A port has been replaced by two USB-C Thunderbolt ports. There's an Intel 11th gen processor, you get a choice of i5 or i7, and that means it's twice as fast as last year's model. And it also works with a new Surface Pen. Prices start at $1,100. Microsoft also announced an updated version of the Surface Pro X. That's the one that runs ARM version of Windows. Nothing has changed, but there are now new Wi-Fi only models and prices start at $890. The Surface Go received minor updates. It's the least powerful, but still manages to allow multiple user accounts and prices start at $400. They also announced the adaptive kit and that's what I was talking about earlier. The textured stickers, labels and tabs designed to improve accessibility. And a new mouse made from recycled plastic was announced. They're calling it the Ocean Plastic Mouse. Still no sign though of the Microsoft Neo. That's the larger folding device with two screens. It was announced at the Surface Hardware event way back in October 2019. It was expected late 2020, but I guess COVID put pay to that. The latest estimate is 2021 or 2022. Although I can't see it being 2021 unless they get a wiggle on and have another event dedicated to it. I'm not in the market right now for another Surface, but I guess depending on what happens two or three years down the line with running Windows virtualized, I may well be. 
Oh, and the comment that I made earlier about lack of coders. Well, I was making these notes as I was actually watching the recording, and guess what? Towards the end, Panos said, I want to take a moment to talk to the devs out there. And it reminded me of Steve Barmer's Developers, Developers, Developers. If you don't remember that one, check out the link in the show notes. Oh, come on. We can do better than that. Developers, 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 developers. Developers, 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 developers. Developers, 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 developers. Anyway, we then had Scott, the Microsoft dev, showing us how the surface is also for coders, which takes us back to inclusivity. Good on you, Microsoft. If you're interested, there's a link to the events recording in the show notes. It's definitely worth a watch, especially in relation to a throwaway comment that became much more significant in the days that followed the event. Panos pointed out that the camera on one of the devices was, and I quote, in the middle where it should be. He specifically mentioned conference calls in relation to this. Now, if you think about the placement of the iPad camera, to be fully centred in a conference, you'd have to move either yourself or the iPad because in landscape mode, the camera's on the side. Two days later, a leaker announced that Apple would be treating the iPad as primarily a landscape device going forward. But what does that mean? Well, moving the camera to the middle of the long edge for a start. Then there's rotating the Apple logo on the back of the device because the logo is already horizontal on the Magic Keyboard. I've always thought iPads should have two front-facing cameras to accommodate both orientations, and I can't tell you the number of times mine tells me the camera's covered when I'm trying to log in in landscape mode. Your thumb doesn't even need to be anywhere near the camera. On the side of the device seems to be enough to upset it. But obviously, should this change happen in the absence of two cameras in the future, I'll be seeing the same message in portrait mode. Did make me think back, though, to 2010 when the iPad was announced. And my abiding memory is Steve Jobs sitting on a sofa in the middle of the stage, holding the thing in portrait mode. Obviously, back then, pitched more as a consumption device, but still... Good idea, bad idea, let us know your thoughts. Now, it wouldn't be a raft of new Apple toys without a gate, would it? This time, it's Jellygate on the iPad mini. You're wondering, aren't you? The problem is jelly scrolling. And it's where the right-hand side of the screen scrolls fractionally faster than the left, which in turn gives a visual distortion of jelly scrolling. I've put a link to a video in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. It's a very good video. It's been slowed down to the point you can actually see precisely what's happening. Doubtless, a point update will fix it. But seriously, Apple, every time, every single time, there's something. And every single time, it's more ludicrous than the last one. So there you have it. Jelly on a plate gate. And there was a big update for Safari on Biggles and Catalina. I know I shouldn't have, but I did. How did it go? It moved my extensions. Now look, Apple, rule one, don't move anything. Rule two, see rule one. Beyond that, well, I didn't really get beyond that. They should know better than moving anything where you're concerned. It never ends well. Exactly. The older I get, the more intransigent I get. Not that I wasn't intransigent to start with, but that's not the point. Having said that, intransigent is not a good place to be. When I'm having to seriously consider doing the Biggles thing before I'm forced to do the full Monty thing. <gasps> decisions, decisions. And all of that was before I had to consider a real blast from the past. The 1970s, to be precise. A stylophone. Oh, happy memories. It was toy of the year in the late 70s. If you are of the uninitiated, it's a small electronic box-like device with an attached stylus, and I do mean attached, via a cable. Oh, the 70s. You use the stylus on an exposed metal part of the box and made music with it. Now, when I say music... It wasn't exactly the Royal Philharmonic, but you get the idea. 
I reckon every kid wanted one back then. I know I did, but I didn't get one. Mum was wise to me having anything that made a noise, especially after the swanny whistle I persuaded her to let me have when I was determined to emulate the clangers. It was bang on accurate. She never forgave me. And trust me, she had a long memory. But back to the stylophone. My cousin did get one for Christmas. And I eventually had to admit mum was right. Trying to get it to do anything more impressive than make random squawks was almost impossible. Well, the stylophone is back. The 2021 version looks almost identical, which is most unfortunate to those of us mature enough to recall the original and particularly how it was marketed. In the days before we knew what an influencer even was, it was common for a celebrity to endorse certain products and in some cases become synonymous with the product. So since we're in the 70s, if you are old enough, think Henry Cooper and Brute. Most unfortunate for Stylophone was the celebrity they chose to endorse and promote the Stylophone. Who was? Rolf Harris. <clears throat> Pause for effect. He did all the TV ads, the radio ads. His face was plastered all over the Stylophone boxes. There were point-of-sale, life-size cardboard cutouts of Rolf Harris. I would say he was unavailable for this round of promotion, but he is actually out of prison now. Thankfully, however, the company took the sage decision to skip Rolf this time round. This stylophone is branded as being the David Bowie stylophone. At least if they've done their due diligence, he isn't available to spring any surprises on the marketing department. I don't see the need for the Bowie hookup at all, but Bowie did use a stylophone on Space Oddity in 1969 and again on his 2002 song Slip Away as well. I wonder if it was the same one because I certainly don't recall them being available for sale in 2002. Maybe they were, but just not in great numbers. Anyway, the manufacturer, Dubrac, have teamed up with the David Bowie archive on this limited edition Bowie stylophone. It's not functionally different from any regular stylophone, but it does include the Bowie logo right across the front of it. And it comes with a booklet that dives into his music and features archive photos. Potentially a bargain at £40 if you can stand the cacophony the stylophone is capable of making. Mind you, Mum's not here to say no now, is she? Hmm, I wonder what Mike would make of it. More significantly, I wonder what Lola would make of it. But moving swiftly along. I did mention the lack of health updates to the Apple Watch last week. I should know better than to tempt fate. Because we now have news of predicted updates to the monitoring capabilities of the Apple Watch incoming. Apple are reported to be developing software to screen for, wait for it, depression and cognitive decline. Just what we need. More pressure in our lives. You know, the only time I get anywhere near depressed, I can guarantee you it will involve Apple. Price hikes, lack of launch day delivery, endless wait for the new iMac, 10-year wait for iWork, launch day order shenanigans. The list is endless. So, rather than just telling me I'm stressed, how about addressing your own issues and proactively making me happy, Timmy? And all of that is before we even consider cognitive decline. This is going to be a hypochondriac's paradise with the added benefit of self-actualization. First, your watch tells you you've got cognitive decline, which in turn makes you depressed. And so is born the nine circles of Apple hell, like Dante's Inferno, but with no escape. Ooh, incoming toys from Amazon in the form of two new Kindle devices this week. Both of them are Powerwhite models, a standard and a signature model. It's actually the first update to these for three years. Loving the bigger screen, 6.8 inches, it has a brighter display, a USB-C charging port and faster processor. Very impressive is the week's longer battery life, up from six weeks to 10 weeks. Also includes IPX8 waterproofing. An Amazon claim a 20% improvement in performance. I'm just wondering what that actually means with an e-reader. Does it mean I can read 20% faster? Probably not. 
They're also adding the colour temperature changing tech that debuted on the 2019 Kindle Oasis. This is to make it a better experience for reading at night. It all sounds fantastic. Am I buying? No, not yet. But there's always the Black Friday sales. I've fallen like that before. Bought a Kindle as soon as it's out and before you know it, within a few weeks, it's cheaper on Black Friday. But there's also another Amazon announcement event planned for this week. And I have a 2018 Oasis. Now, I might be tempted by a new Oasis. Yes, I know there's not that much difference in functionality between the Paperwhite and the Oasis, but I do love the format of the Oasis. The updates are only incremental these days anyway, because there's nothing absolutely compelling. In fact, I can't think of anything compelling they could add that would make this a must purchase. And I actually only bought the Oasis when my previous Paperwhite died. That was the day Amazon surpassed themselves. The Paperwhite was declared dead. Oh, I had tried everything. I'd done the Googles and I'd tried every incantation possible. So the order was placed for an Oasis with same day delivery. It was in my eager hands 42 minutes later. And I'm still quite happy with it. So are you buying one of these new Kindles? Do let us know. Now, the EU have decided we should all do what they think is the right thing and use USB-C. Yes, it's taken them 10 years to get this far, but that's not actually unusual with the EU. Obviously, the logic is there's less tech waste. But since many of us have dozens of lightning cables and chargers, I predict any reduction in terms of tech waste will take a few years yet to bear fruit. By which time there might be other technologies vying for the top spot. Needless to say, Apple aren't pleased. But their cries of foul have been humorous at best. They claim USB-C will harm innovation. All have a think about that. Yes, I know. iPads already have USB-C. But maybe Timmy has forgotten that. You know, cognitive decline and all that. The devices affected will include more than phones. It will be all smartphones, tablets, cameras, headphones, portable speakers and handheld video game consoles. Well, at least that one won't bother me. Other products, including earbuds, smart watches and fitness trackers, were not considered for technical reasons. Obviously, the technical reasons being the size of these devices and how they're used. The proposal also standardises fast charging speeds, meaning that devices capable of fast charging will be charged at the same speeds. It could be ages before this actually happens, obviously. At this stage, the legislative proposal, known as a directive, will be debated by the European Parliament and national governments. Members of the European Parliament and member states may suggest amendments to this proposal. Hmm. Brexit. I don't think the UK are going to get a say in this. But only once the EU has agreed those amendments is the directive enacted. The EU hopes that this will happen in 2022. <laughs> Good luck with that. But after that, any states usually have two years to enact the rules into national law. And manufacturers will then have 24 months to change the charging ports. The phrase of victory for common sense was uttered. But then again, this is the EU. And who can ever forget the bend in your banana edict? So take all of that with a pinch of salt. So what do a pair of Apple geeks do on a Saturday night whilst presenting a four hour live radio show? They update their iPhones to iOS 15, having backed up all their photos first, of course. My photos are actually the only thing that aren't in the cloud. I know they should be, but neither Apple nor Google make the process seamless enough for me to trust it. So, phone view it was then. My photos are also in need of a serious organisation, but this was not the time. And I did the iOS 14.8 thing first. I didn't do the iOS 14.8 thing since I was still on iOS 13. I will remain forever completely oblivious to anything iOS 14 related. The burning question is, did we survive the great iOS 15 update? iPads always easier to update, much easier. Updating iPhones, on the other hand, fills me with dread. 
Well, I had no choice as Audible was broken. There's a thing called Plus Catalog, which is basically a wide range of free content available for subscribers. Except me. I couldn't see the orange included button in the latest version of the app on iOS 13. So upgrading was the only option. I wanted to try the new focus mode. My phone is permanently on DND, or as I call it, I don't care what your crisis is, you're going to have to wait mode. The only issue was the alarm clock app that I prefer wouldn't bypass that mode. I tried the built-in app and even then that only worked randomly. So one option was to schedule DND to turn off a couple of minutes before the alarm. But I could guarantee that the cacophony of alerts that would be unleashed would have driven me insane before the alarm had had a chance to sound. So my hope was that focus mode would fix it. So in we went. I had to wait for you to do the iOS 14.8 thing first and then we were off. Despite starting at exactly the same time, you got there first. Probably took longer from iOS 13 than iOS 14. Maybe they were forcing you to 14 first. The one thing that we'd completely forgotten while updating was WhatsApp. Why was that significant? Well, the live radio show? Mm. Yes, there's a WhatsApp chat we use during the show. I just posted two photos via the WhatsApp sidebar that I've got in Vivaldi and there was just a spinning wheel. Bad words were being said until you mentioned WhatsApp doesn't like being separated from the iPhone. Yes, the iPhone that was catatonic whilst it was being updated. So we were working blind for 25 minutes while the update happened and WhatsApp staggered back to life. Amazingly, the update was just as painless as the iPad had been. A lightweight download too at only 2.3 gig as well. And once the update was done, the first thing I spotted on my phone was a badge on the settings with a number one on it. Surely not another update already. Anyway, I tapped it and there was a message. Apple Music free for six months. Your AirPods come with six free months of Apple Music. Redeem now expires 28th of December 2021. Now, why didn't they tell me that in March 2019 when I bought them? Because Timothy wasn't trying to entice you into a subscription that you then forget to cancel back then, was he? Anyway, I decline their kind offer. I'll leave it until the 28th of December, if I take it up at all. The last musical offer from Apple was Bono, a freebie, and that's never been played either. It wasn't just Bono. It, it was all of you too, Mike. It's just that Bono is burnt on your brain, isn't it, as the imagery. Him and Timmy pushing the button together. Do you remember that? Exactly. <laughs> wasn't that seven years ago now? That's frightening. Timmy must have decided that I wasn't worthy of the same deal. Despite buying AirPods at exactly the same time Mike did, nothing showing on mine. No great loss, I suspect. In fact, I am suspecting this was an attempt to lure me in to be able to try to use SharePlay. I know it's not there yet, but maybe Timmy is thinking there's a chance I might fall in love with it once it is. <laughs> not happening to me, but keep trying, boy. It's fun to watch. Now, I'll admit I did sneak a peek at Safari to marvel or not at the address bar at the bottom. I didn't really get much of a chance to marvel or otherwise as one password accosted me to enable the integrated extension. Now, that's nice. Finally, after 14 years of mobile devices, Apple realise extensions are a useful thing. Nice integration, simple to set up and works perfectly. Definitely worth the upgrade for, but it's only in Safari right now. Mm. The question is then, is that integration enough to make me switch back to Safari? Mm. Supplemental question. Can I live with the URL bar at the bottom? I know it's supposed to aid one handed use and make it easy to swipe between open tabs, but I'm just not sure of the use of that on a plus size phone. I mean, we both tried it, didn't we? And we were both, the phone was wobbling <laughs> in one hand. I'm not seeing it myself, I'm not. Still, I could always have the best of both worlds and use Safari with one password and stick the URL bar back at the top. I will see how it goes and report back. 
Also, I finally got around to being able to try the live text thing, the proper full thing, not not the read it in from an image thing, the actual it's on the camera, point it at something with text and you can see it thing. Maybe it was because I'd waited so long and I had such high expectations, but it was nice, but not necessarily thrilling. At least not until I need to use it for real anyway. I'm guessing it would be much more useful for translations, but there's not much call for that at MacBytes headquarters and I'm not going anywhere else right now. But at least I was able to finally try it so I can tick it off my bucket list now. Same here. My iPad's too old to support it, but my iPhone does. So I picked up this utility bill that was on my desk and I tried it with that. It picked up the URL off the bill, which I duly tapped and was taken to the website of the company that provides our water services. Like you say, another tick in the box. I'm sure it'll come useful one day. The thing is, if it's not something that you use every day, would you remember to use it when you actually had a use for it? Or would you just forget it's there? Probably forget it's there. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We should make a list of these things, Mike, and, and like strap it to yourself somewhere. Have a tattoo on your arm, things to try, and, and keep it that way. Um, the hide my email, I've also been too busy to try that as well. And I really wanted to try that. It's a treat I've saved for myself for this week. But right now I'm wondering if it sounds more useful than it's actually going to prove. Because if I sign up for something, it's because I want information from that source. But time will tell when I finally get round to trying it. Well, I can't add anything to this one. I've not tried it either. Well, my primary concern was focus mode, and this is where I have spent most of my time. In fact, both of us have far too much time. But it was my number one thing to try. I wanted to have DND enabled and get no notifications of anything whatsoever, including if the house is on fire. I, I wanted it that quiet, except for anything from Mike and my clock app of choice, something that all previous versions of iOS couldn't manage. Now, this implementation of focus modes, notice plural, it sounded so promising. A more granular approach was promised. And it was the primary reason that I'd updated to iOS 15 so quickly on my phone. I mean, obviously, we can see from you, you just skipped iOS 14. So you were in no great rush to update at all. And neither am I usually. Um, but there we were. I was in. I've no idea why, but you had four focus modes available and I only had three. Timmy strikes again. I was missing driving mode. Again, not a crisis right now. And you can add additional modes as you need them. I was initially only concerned with the default DND mode. Uh, adding you as, to, as a person to bypass was simple, as was adding my alarm app. We tested you calling me. It bypassed DND. Perfect. We tested you texting me. It bypassed DND. Perfect. We tested my alarms app. It bypassed DND. Perfect. So far, so good. Except that on Monday, the first time I was using the alarm for real, nothing. Hmm. More testing required. I managed to get it working as intended, finally, by switching the mirror iPhone alerts from and then choosing my alarms app off in the watch app. Because what was happening was the alert was coming through to the watch and bypassing the phone. So finally, I have exactly what I need. Complete peace which is more than some who are bereft at the loss of silence when device is locked. This was an option that was previously available. Did you ever take any notice of that? No. Me neither. I mean, it was fairly obvious what it did, I guess, if you thought about it at all, which I didn't. It was previously part of the single do not disturb setting. The plan was that you enable do not disturb, but you had an additional option for do not disturb to be available all the time and thus your phone or device silent all the time or only be silent when DND was enabled and the device was locked. So that meant if you picked up a device that was in DND mode and you started working on it, your notifications would come through to it because it was unlocked. And then once it was locked again, it was back in DND mode. Actually, thinking about it, it's very handy that. That is very useful. I just never had it enabled. Well, the problem is there's no equivalent setting in the new focus mode settings. 
as I say, it wasn't something I'd ever use, but I, I can understand, even if it was something I would never use. And now I'm thinking that that had some uses. But even if I'd never use it, I can understand how peeved you'd be to have previously used it, particularly if you go back to, you know, iPhone one and now it's gone. I probably spent more time in focus mode configuring it to be exactly how I want it to be than I have in iOS or iPadOS for years. And judging by the number of times I've heard your morning alarm, so have you. Well, I'm still at the testing stage. I configured DND to allow calls from you, I'm a mother, I'm a brother, and to allow notifications from Goal Live. For me, actually, it just makes it easier to enable DND and not have to add people to a call exceptions group and then faff about with the emergency bypass workaround. Which I think is probably why they've done it. And despite the loss of this option, which hopefully will come back because actually that is a really useful option, I think it is an improvement. I, I've got three of these things. I've got Do Not Disturb. I've got Personal Work. I might have another one. I don't know. But I actually just configured the do not disturb. But the fact that you can have different levels of interruptibility, I, I do think is very clever. I think just I, I would probably have thought that was fantastic about a year ago. And now I'm like, no, I, I need do not disturb, do not disturb, not just do not disturb. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I want you. But other than that, no, ne never. But I, I might configure some extra ones, you know, when we're leaving the house again and things like that. But at the moment, it does everything that I need it to do. And I'm impressed. Oh, do you think Timmy's listening now? Do you think he might give me the fourth one now? Now, all of that was before we tackled our Apple Watches. I don't know why, but updating the Apple Watch always makes me nervous. There's just so much jeopardy involved. I'd actually almost forgotten it needed doing. It had been reminding me for weeks there was an update available, so I was kind of immune to its moaning. But I decided everything else was up to date, or at least as far as it could go. So, what was the harm? <laughs> You're waiting for the other foot to fall, aren't you? Uh, mine went swimmingly, took about 30 minutes, and all was well. Yours, however, was a completely different story, wasn't it? It was. I set mine going, expecting it to take about the same time. But after 90 minutes, it was still saying looking for an update. Wasn't that the time it reported five hours to find the update as well? It did indeed say five hours, yeah. Which I said was a bit excessive at the time. Yes. The moral of the story is don't start your update uh, when it's bedtime. Um, but yeah, the watch had rebooted, showing it showed the Apple logo, but it didn't look right as the phone was still searching for the update. I tried three times before giving up and you took over and I went to bed. There's sage advice for a stuck update. Well, I turned both the phone and the watch off completely. I rebooted the watch, rebooted the phone. I don't think it liked the fact you'd skipped iOS 14. There were error messages all over the phone saying that it knew that there was an Apple Watch previously tethered to the phone, but without updating, you wouldn't be able to use the watch, which would have been fine. But since it didn't want to update the watch either, we had a bit of an issue. Genius. Not. There is a process whereby you can nuke a half-downloaded update, but it didn't like that either. <laughs> There's a story here. So another reboot of the phone it was then. After that, I did manage to get into the Apple Watch app and started the download of the update once again. With everything plugged in and finally downloaded, I set it going. After much coaxing, it started the update. In total, the reboots and the nursing of all of the error messages actually took longer than the final update did. But I toddled to bed later, clutching my iPhone, an iPad, your iPhone and your watch. All done. Oh, and while we're talking about the watch, why, Apple? Just why? Why have you reversed the display of the timers? Now, instead of presets at the top, followed by recent and finally the custom button, we have the custom button at the top in the way constantly, followed by the recents and finally the defaults. Change for the sake of change. If you'd wanted to make a real difference to the usability of the timers, one, let us change the defaults. Two, let us finally delete the recents. But just turning everything on its head doesn't make a good update. 
And that's before I get on to the psychedelic lava lamp that you've injected into the Mindful Minutes section. Was the designer on acid or something stronger? It's vile. It's absolutely vile. Bet you've not even seen it yet, have you? No. Go and have a look. I wonder if you can even find the Mindful Minutes. There you go. Mindfulness. Yeah, not the breath one, the other one. Just reflect, breathe. What does it actually say? Yeah, like you're going to forget to breathe. Although, do hold me breath with these updates. Yes, there's reflection for a minute and breathe for a minute. Yeah. Right, well, try the reflection one. Yeah. It's quite slow, but then it, then it says begin. And then there is something indescribable on the face of my watch. Take a moment to pause. Yeah, never mind that. We've not got time. Think about the last time you made something. It could be a meal, a piece of art or project. Or trouble, in my case. Make trouble. Now that now it's gone, I didn't... Re oh, hang on. Recall the details of what you made. Um, I made chicken and vegetables tonight. Yeah, that was, that was very nice. Will you get on with it? I want you to look at the psychedelic lava lamp. Oh, that. Now... Just imagine, you, you, while you're imagining the chicken and veg that you made tonight, just imagine looking at that. Does it not look like a colour version of a colonoscopy? It does. <laughs> yeah. It's vile, isn't it? <laughs> I've, never, I've never run this out before. Oh, it's all exciting for Mike. I'm, I'm not into mindfulness. Well, if you ever get the urge to view a semi-live colonoscopy, there you go. It's the lava lamp on the watch. I wasn't into mindfulness before and I'm certainly not into it now. No, not after that. I, I wonder with the colour of it, whether it would give people with epilepsy any problems. Because mm. I don't have epilepsy and it's giving me problems. But maybe that's just because I visualise a colonoscopy. <laughs> ah, anyway, we better move on, hadn't we? <laughs> Never mind all this merriment. How did you get on with your challenge? For this week's Back to Basics challenge, I've chosen to focus on mail. I've used a whole variety of mail clients on both iOS and on the Mac over the years. I've used built-in apps, I've used Outlook, I've used browsers, I've used Spark. Sometimes I'd actually have multiple clients installed and configured, so if one stopped working, I could just switch to another. Sometimes I'd try an app and find one feature that was a showstopper. A good example of that was Spark, a very powerful app with a whole slew of useful features, but it forced me to display the emails as threaded conversations with no option to switch it off. Threaded conversations are where emails with the same subject are grouped together rather than just seeing a chronological list of mail in your inbox. A while back, I decided to reduce the number of apps installed on my phone. So instead of having several mail clients, several calendar apps, several Twitter clients and so on, I just had one of each. Spark was already a goner, as I said, and I would have uninstalled Outlook, but I decided to use it to access my work mail. So I moved it to an AZ folder, which I'd put on the last page of apps. So that left me with the built-in mail app and the Gmail app. My primary mail account is hosted at Google. And because I'd started using the Google Calendar app, it made sense to give the Gmail app a go. So for the last year or so, that's what I've been using on the phone to access my mail, with the built-in app relegated to the Apple folder, which like the AZ folder is on page five of my iPhone's home screen. As well as my Google hosted mail account, I also have an iCloud mail account. But the only worthwhile emails I get to it are notifications from Google about YouTube royalty payments for my videos. And I can just check my bank account for those. I did try several times to connect to my iCloud account from the Gmail app, but each time I got an error. However, the built-in mail app was already configured to connect to my iCloud account, so I just used that. It just meant a few swipes to get to page five, but as I say, I hardly ever check that account anyway. For the purpose of the challenge, I moved the Gmail app on my iPhone to the last screen and moved the built-in mail app, which I said was on the last screen, to the first screen, and that way I wouldn't be tempted to use the Gmail app. I had to configure the mail app to talk to my Google-hosted mail account, and that was simple enough, but I also took the opportunity to fix a problem. About three months ago, on the one occasion I did open the built-in app, it started displaying an error message. It couldn't connect to my iCloud mail account. As it wasn't a crisis, I just ignored it. If I really needed to access my iCloud mail, 
I could just use a browser. But I didn't even bother doing that. Anyway, it turned out to be an easy fix. Just re-entered the password. So, not having checked my iCloud email for about three months, imagine my surprise to find a load of mails bouncing in to the mail app. Apart from the YouTube payment notifications, there were about a hundred mails from Zoosk. No, I'd never heard of it either. I had to Google it, and it turns out it's a dating site, and someone had used my iCloud email address to create an account. The mails were full of photos of other Zoosk members with links to their profiles. Yes, photos of 60 and 70 year old males. So not only have I had my identity stolen, I've had a gender realignment and been aged 10 to 15 years. My biggest challenge with using the mail app on the iPhone was the swiping. The Gmail app was configured to swipe right to send a mail to the archive and swipe left to delete it which takes us nicely back to Zoosk. The mail app was configured the other way, and after several days of sending messages that were meant for the bin to the archive, frustration started to set in. I wanted to set it the same as the Gmail app, i.e. swipe left for delete. I went into the settings for the mail app, swipe right was set to archive and swipe left was set to none. And in the swipe left options there was only none, markers red, flag and move messages. There's no delete option. Anyway, after doing the Googles, I found a way. Go to settings, passwords and accounts, choose the Gmail account, tap on the Gmail address and tap advanced. Move discarded messages was set to archive mailbox. So I changed it to deleted mailbox. And when I went back into the mail app and did a swipe left, I now had delete as an option. And swiping right gave me archive. A bit convoluted and illogical, but it works and I'm a happy bunny. As well as configuring the swipe options, I also had to go into the notification settings to disable the Gmail app notifications and enable the mail app notifications. Otherwise, when I tapped on a notification on the home screen, it would take me to the Gmail app. And we can't have that, can we? Now, the challenge wasn't limited to iOS, but to the desktop as well. And like the iPhone, I've used a number of apps on the Mac. The built-in Mail app, Outlook, and most recently, Gmail in a browser. Compared to Outlook on Windows, Outlook on the Mac is missing a number of features. For example, Quick Steps and Quick Parts, which are both automation time savers. Why they're not on the Mac, I have no idea. When questioned about it on Uservoice.com, which is Microsoft's public suggest-a-feature forum, the reply from Microsoft was that it doesn't align with our goals for the application whatever that may mean. So my current setup is to use the Gmail website for my Google hosted mail and the iCloud website for my iCloud mail. I did have the mail app configured to access my iCloud mail account, but for some reason I removed that account from the app. I was probably testing something. Yes, I know I should have reconnected to the account and I've finished testing. The only thing with using the iCloud website is doing the two factor thing. And even if I choose to trust the browser, so I don't have to do the two-factor thing each time. It seems to untrust itself behind my back. As you pointed out to me, there's a new fancy interface for mail on the iCloud website. It looks similar to macOS and iPadOS mail. But as I said earlier, I've no need to access the iCloud mail on a regular basis. So how's it been using the mail app instead of the browser? Well, to be honest, my biggest challenge is remembering to use the mail app. I've been so used to using the Gmail website. And if I find myself doing that, I quickly shut the page down like a naughty schoolboy and open the mail app instead. Managing the mail, so reading it, replying, creating a new one, etc, etc, can all be done with ease. And if I need to do any account management, create rules, for example, which I only do occasionally, then I'd use the Gmail website. So having used the built-in apps for a week, what can I conclude? That the built-in apps aren't as bad as you might think. Yes, the bells and whistles of Spark are nice, but they're a nice to have. and They're not critical. Well, not to me anyway. Being part of the OS, I guess there's a perception that they're not as good as third party apps. Or at least that's my perception. Probably goes back to my Windows days where Microsoft included card file and called it a personal information manager. My needs, as far as mail are concerned, are fairly basic. Create, send, receive, delete, archive and search. But of course, your mileage may vary. 
You may be a male power user whose mail is your life's work. I'm happy to continue to use the mail app on the phone and the Mac for the next few weeks whilst I'm doing this challenge. But after that, I'll reevaluate what's best for my workflow. Well, I started my life on Mac with the default mail client and I used it for a long time. It was when Apple started locking it down more and more, so third-party extensions either didn't work or it became time-consuming to manage them that I decided to look around. There was at one stage plenty of options for alternatives. There was Boxer, Airmail, Sharp, Postbox, Thunderbird and Mailplane. The trouble was, with increasing regularity, you'd settle on a client, configure it to perfection, and within weeks it would either sunset or be bought by a big player. So I decided to go right back to fundamentals and decide what features really were critical and which ones were just niceties. And I worked out that my main requirement from all these alternative mail clients was to take content from the mail and put it somewhere else for reference. Some mail clients made it easy to send content onto OmniFocus. Others made it easier to work with things. And then there was the seemingly simple task of saving a mail as a PDF. How is something so simple a living nightmare in half the apps I've ever used? Some could create a PDF, but getting it to the correct place in my system was tricky. So stripping it back to the absolute core of what I actually needed gave me an opportunity to simplify the entire thing. The one feature that all mail apps have is the ability to forward a mail. So instead of convoluted processes to create and file PDFs, I decided to simply forward any mails containing content that I would potentially need in the future to the most flexible of systems, Evernote. With that done, I can use any mail client and not have to change the process. I am no longer tempted by new shiny clients claiming a million integrations. I don't have the time to waste setting them all up only for the app to die within weeks. This is one situation where simple actually really is better, purely for the fact that it actually works. I probably need to add that I don't use Evernote for much beyond being a filing cabinet. I only venture in there when I have to find something that I now need. I don't bother with any organisation, tags or convoluted notebook systems. I just tend to rely on the search option, all of which means I can use just a browser for processing mail. Something you mentioned a while back, and I'll admit, I was horrified at the mere thought of it. It's actually working out pretty well, though. I still use the Gmail client app on iOS and iPadOS, but I'm productive enough in the browser not to be searching for the perfect desktop mail app anymore. That way, madness lies. Just proving that point, my last desktop mail app is currently in its death throes. Mailplane was a great client because it provided additional features in a wrapper around the Gmail website. So all the default shortcuts within Gmail worked just as well inside Mailplane as they did in the browser. And its sad demise is not a choice of the developer. This time it's Google's fault. They made changes that mean access to the API could stop working at any time. So the developers have stopped selling Mailplane, and when it finally does break, that's it. So I'm actually happier using a browser as there's nothing left to break. In the meanwhile, I've been considering your challenge. A bit of a tricky one, but I think I've found a suitably difficult option for you. Your challenge is to use dark mode and report back on how it works for you, or doesn't work for you. My worst nightmare, you mean. Cheers for that. I will do the deed and report back. Right now, though, time for the next part in our Vivaldi series. And this time it's bookmarks. Not just bookmarks, though, also sessions, but more on that later. So when it comes to bookmarks, Vivaldi is really good at importing from other installed browsers, which can be done either during the onboarding or later. I would suggest saving that little treat for later because later you actually have more control over how the bookmarks are imported. If you're not importing from the device that you're currently working on, you can still do it, but instead of using the import option first, you need to go to wherever the bookmarks are coming from and export them from there, preferably in a format that is simple enough that Vivaldi will understand without you having to do any extra work. If that is a HTML page, Vivaldi should be perfectly fine with it. 
So having exported from elsewhere, you can then import straight into Vivaldi. Once you've got your initial set of bookmarks in there, of course, you are going to face the task of adding bookmarks as you start working. And to do that, it's the same shortcut key as in any other browser, Command and D. The difference in Vivaldi is instead of presenting you with some kind of dialog box that needs to be completed, Command and D will actually save the bookmark straight away. It will just automatically file it. Now, obviously, that's not great if you're trying to organise your bookmarks individually and keep a structured set of folders for them. But you will see a bookmark icon in the address bar. And clicking on that when you've saved the bookmark gives you access to edit that bookmark, change its name, give it a nickname, choose a location for it. You've got all of the options available from there. Now, creating a folder, fairly straightforward. You know why you might do that. But what about a nickname? Well, a nickname is a short alias. So if you always want to go to BBC Sport and you'd like to do it quickly, Rather than actually navigate to the bookmark and click the bookmark, you can give the bookmark a nickname. So you could say BBC Sport. And as soon as you type BBC Sport in the address bar and press enter, it will load in that bookmark. So nicknames are great. In terms of accessing and managing all your bookmarks, there are numerous places within Vivaldi that you can do that. Starting with the one that gives you the least options, and that's the bookmarks menu. So as with many, many other browsers, if not all of them, you have a bookmarks menu bar. And from there, you have access to folders that contain your bookmarks. You can't do anything in the way of management. It's just simple access to those bookmarks. But if you are used to using the menu bar in other browsers, then it's there in Vivaldi for you. Another option in many browsers is a bookmarks bar that usually appears just below the address bar. And again, that just gives you simple access without anything in the way of managing those bookmarks. But it's a nice, fast way to work and it can be toggled on and off. Then Vivaldi veers off and provides you with extra options when it comes to bookmarks. Vivaldi has a range of web panels and one of those is a bookmarks panel. Now, by default, web panels are on the left of the screen. I've moved mine to the right, which makes more sense for me, but your mileage may vary. Now, the bookmarks web panel gives you more features than either the menu or the bar. You'll instantly notice the search box at the top and there is a number displayed next to each of the folders within the web panel. And that shows you the number of bookmarks inside each folder and subfolder within those folders. What isn't as obvious is that the bookmarks are sortable in the web panel. Now, I say it isn't as obvious because while it says it's sorted by name, there isn't a drop down arrow. So it looks like it's a heading, but if you click on that, it gives you other options in the way to sort the bookmarks. The best bit of that is sorting them in the web panel doesn't permanently affect the storage order of the bookmarks anywhere else. So it really is useful for triaging bookmarks, managing bookmarks. Obviously you can use the bookmarks as well, but it's a great place to start with the management. Even better than the web panel for managing bookmarks is the bookmark manager window. Now that's brought up with command and control and B. And this is the most feature rich management of bookmarks in Vivaldi. It's similar to the web panel, but there's more metadata initially available for each bookmark than there is in the web panel. In addition to the nickname, there's also a description field. And anything and everything that you type into the metadata is searchable. So this is where I do my bookmark heavy lifting. It's the perfect place for it. Having said that, I don't do much of that as many common URLs I actually keep in Typeinator. And that's so I can access them in multiple browsers and across multiple devices. So while that's nothing to do with Vivaldi, it's something to bear in mind. It doesn't need to be Typeinator. It could be Text Expander or Alfred. Anything that can handle a text expansion could be used in that way. Now, Vivaldi also has another feature when it comes to bookmarks, and that's the speed dial. And I do use speed dials. Now, a speed dial is a specific collection of bookmarks displayed in a thumbnail grid when you open a new tab or a new window. Now, I've been using Speed Dial 2 for 10 years, but it's one of the few extensions that doesn't play nicely with Vivaldi. 
So that's why I decided to give the built-in options a try. And to be honest, it's great. Where it differs from most other browsers is in allowing multiple speed dials, which is perfect for having multiple project resources accessible easily. Even better, the speed dial folders can be any folders in your bookmark system. A speed dial status can be toggled on and off for any folder whatsoever. So should you want quick access to resources, you don't have to waste time reorganising your entire bookmark collection to get them in the right place to be shown on the speed dial. They can stay where they are and just put a tick in a box. It makes it much faster and much easier to manage what you see when you open a new tab. Now, in terms of capturing bookmarks, you can capture all of the open tabs in a window and save them to a bookmark folder. Or you could select a specific range of them using the command key to sequentially select multiple tabs. And again, that creates one single folder containing all the tabs. Bookmarks and specifically groups of bookmarks saved to a folder is great as far as it goes. But sessions are even more powerful. A session can save all the tabs currently open in all windows and not in a single folder either. Much more usefully, a session can restore those pages to the windows they were in. So it's perfect in two scenarios. One, you quickly need to simplify your browsing by closing tabs and windows. But you want to get back to those tabs and windows at some point in the future. And two, you have a specific set of tabs or windows that you use for a particular job. So, for example, I always create a session before MacBytes After Hours on a Friday night so I can use only the tabs I actually need during the live show and then return to exactly those tabs that I was working with before the show once the show's complete. And while you can have multiple windows in a session, you don't need to. There is an option to save a session containing only those tabs within the current window. It really is a great feature. So think of sessions as supercharged bookmarks. One thing to remember, though, bookmarks and their folder structure do synchronise via a free Vivaldi account. Sessions do not sync. They are saved per device. There are a couple of dirty hacks to transfer sessions from one device to another. But while they work, they're not pretty. But if you're interested in them, I'm demoing them in MacBytes After Hours 148 on Friday night. But that's it for Vivaldi today. Bookmarks and sessions. And we have another live MacBytes After Hours on Friday. We will have the usual fun and games together with demos and deep dives. Do join us 9pm UK time. It would not be the same without you. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elena Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What in the name of all that's holy is that noise? Are you on the blink again? Okay, final guess. Did your iOS 15 update go badly awry? Not even close. At least it stopped now. You better get used to it. Why do I need to get used to it? Because it's a stylophone. The Christmas present she didn't get as a child. Something like that has a strong pull to it. Were ear defenders big on that year's most wanted gift list too? I don't believe so. But now you mention it they probably should have been. Can't she just get a dolly and be done? And just who do you think would be brave enough to buy her a dolly? That's an excellent point. Maybe we can distract her with something else. I've got just the thing. There are times you are more dim-witted than even I thought possible. I didn't know it made that noise. What noise did you think it might make? I didn't think it made any noise. I thought it was a spiralizer.
What on earth did you expect her to do with a spiralizer? Something quiet in the kitchen. You really have lost the plot this time. We have absolutely no evidence she actually knows where the kitchen is. Ear defenders all round at his end. The MacBytes mum was a very wise woman. Tell me they do same day delivery.